Dr. Regina Nutzo joins this episode of the Clinical Consult, where we'll break down the meaning of a p-value. And while many psychologists are familiar with this number, today we're going to focus on p-values because they have historically and currently, too, been misinterpreted by many social scientists, including health service psychologists. So in the spirit of being good stewards of research and using sound evidence in our clinical interventions, I'm pleased to have Dr. Nutzo with me today, who offers just the expertise we need to have this type of conversation. Dr. Nutzo received a PhD in statistics from Stanford University and is a professor at Gallaudet University in Washington, DC. She also completed graduate training in science writing from the University of California, Santa Cruz with work appearing in the LA Times, the New York Times and Nature among other publications. Dr. Nutzo is the 2014 recipient of the American Statistical Association's Excellence in Statistical Reporting Award for a feature on p-values and is currently the ASA's Senior Advisor for Statistics Communication. Regina, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I'm really looking forward to this. To get us going, Regina, I want to paint a scenario for you that I'm sure you've envisioned before in your career, and that's when psychologists treat patients, they endeavor to apply interventions that are evidence-based. And as you know, this means reading and applying research findings with p-values being a frequent statistic that many psychologists encounter in their work. Keeping this in mind, what are some good ways for us to be thinking about p-values? Well, first of all, that's a great question. But first of all, if p-values seem strange and hard to understand, I want to reassure you that's because they are. So p-values have been misunderstood and misinterpreted pretty much ever since they were introduced to researchers, which was almost a century ago now. So why, why are we still talking about this? <clears throat> it's become an especially big problem in the social sciences today because researchers had advanced so much that we're looking for these increasingly subtle effects and, and hard-to-see relationships. And it's in this murky environment that you can really run into trouble with p-values. So statisticians have been trying to sound the alarm about all these misunderstandings about p-values for decades, but it's only recently that awareness has really been raised about it. And in 2016, the ASA, the American Statistical Association, published an official statement to help people understand what p-values are and what they're not and what some of the common misunderstandings and misinterpretations and abuses are with p-values. That being said, to me, the big problem in all of this is this magical p equals 0.05 threshold for so-called statistical significance. Let's narrow in on that term you just used, Regina, statistical significance. And when I hear that and when others hear that, I think to many, that phrase can suggest that the researcher has found something of great consequence, but that's not necessarily correct. It's kind of the, what I'm picking up from you, is it? Not at all. It's exactly right, Daniel. So <clears throat> originally the term significant was used to mean 
uh, signifying something or worthy of a second look or hmm, um, surprising, something there. So it's really unfortunate that in kind of modern casual English, lay colloquial English, significant seems to imply big or important or strong, but p-values can't actually tell us about how big an effect is or how strong of a relationship there is. So let me give you an example of this. There was a study in the Journal of American Medical Association a little while ago that it followed uh, more than 34,000 middle-aged women. It followed them for 13 years over time. And it looked at, among other things, how much they exercised and how much weight they gained. So they weren't told to restrict calories or anything or exercise more or less. It just looked to see what people did. And it found something interesting. So it found that women who exercised at least one hour every day gained significantly less weight than those who had exercised less than 20 minutes a day. So everyone gained a little bit of weight, but the people exercised at least an hour a day gained significantly less. And the p-value here was very small. It was a p-value of less than 0 0.001. And as you probably know, researchers often describe results with a p-value that small as highly significant. So when I say it like that, it seems pretty big or important or strong, right? But guess what the difference was? How much more weight did the couch potatoes gain compared to the hour a day exercises? I'll say 10 pounds. <laughs> I'll garner a guess. I love it. Okay. Real answer. Thank you. Real answer. <laughs> 0.11 pounds per year on okay. average. I messed up the decimal point. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> 0.1 pounds per year on average. So over the course of this 13-year study, that equals what? 1.4 extra pounds, less than two extra pounds. So the effect, when we talk about effect size, the effect here of exercising at least seven hours a week, an hour a day compared to just an hour a week, you know, 20 minutes a day or less, it saves you less than two pounds. So that seems much less significant when you put it this way, right? If I didn't look at the effect size, if I just looked at the p-value, I might decide that I need to start exercising, you know, an hour or two hours every day. Whereas if I look at the effect size, I say, you know what? I can deal with an extra two pounds over 13 years, 0.1 pounds per year. It's not going to kill me. So that's the difference between what's really significant and what's statistically significant. And it's too bad that we use the word significant in both of these cases. Regina, my bad guessing aside, and I think I just fell into that trap that we're really talking about where we don't want to be relying too heavily on, on this, this tricky number that we're talking about here today, the p-value. And so this is very fascinating. And what I'm hearing you describe are the various ways that when we talk about p-values, things can go dreadfully wrong. And this just really strikes me at how susceptible 
scientists can, can be, you know, even if unintentional, to at times misinterpret this number because we all want to use evidence, right? We all want to be making decisions that are informed by evidence. And so from that place of wanting it to be, I think we kind of position ourselves to be a little vulnerable if we rely too heavily on the p-value. And so I know I've certainly bungled a few p-values in my day, may they rest in peace, just to put myself right in the middle of this whole debacle. But I want to take, I'm hoping you'll take us a little bit further on this, Regina, because I, I want to talk a little more about how psychologists, and I put myself in this camp as consumers of quantitative research who strive to use evidence, how can, how can we do better than, than what we've been doing? That is a great question. I'm sure the bungled p-values, you know, they um, they they are resting in peace and they forgive you for for all of this. So this this is a good question. You know, in in my opinion, this statistical significance, this this dichotomy of significant or not, this you know p-value, it has an outsized if, uh, importance. You know, people are focusing on that way too much. And you've probably seen this. If you go to abstracts of published papers, sometimes they don't even say how big something is or, or how much or what the relationship is. They just say, okay, a P of 0.01, statistically significant, done. And, and that's all they say. So I think it's important for people to feel, you know, empowered, encouraged to go into the literature and find what the effect size is, to find how much weight are people gaining or how much of a difference does this make and really think about what this means for the population who'd be affected by this. Also, what's important, and sometimes this gets buried in the discussion section, why do we even think that this is real? So a p-value, it's, it's not perfect. We might end up, you know, I think of p-values as, and, and not statistically, statistically significant, I think of it as being surprising. So things can get flagged by a p-value as being surprising. So it's the responsibility of the researcher, the author of the manuscript, to explain all the other evidence, why they think that this is surprising and important and real. So bringing in information from other studies, from um, what does this know with established theories about whatever the topic is? Have these interventions been tried in other populations or in other studies? Has this study been replicated? So bringing everything to bear, not just stopping with the p-value. The p-value should be the start of the conversation. It's flagging it as something being interesting or surprising, and then you go on from there. And instead, today, somehow, we end up just stopping with the p-value. As consumers of quantitative research, too, as readers, we bear some responsibility to be critically examining studies and to looking at a number of the factors that you've just pulled out. But and along that vein, I want to make sure to emphasize that when it comes to evidence-based practice, listeners should turn to the American Psychological Association's practice directorate, which I think does a really good job of compiling some essential resources on how to infuse your clinical work with evidence. And that's 
including things like the APA's uh, 2006 Presidential Task Force on Evidence-Based Practice. And in addition, I know some APA divisions like the Division 12 or cl Clinical Psych, Division 16, School Psych, 17 Counseling Psych, and I know uh, Division 42 in the Independent Practice Directorate also compiles some great resources on their website about evidence-based care that are good to review. Before we wrap up though, Regina, talk to me a little more about where we go from here as quantitative psychologists or consumers of, of quantitative research. We've discussed this a little bit, but I wanna go a little bit deeper with you, if you will. I, I'm gathering from what you've shared that scientists and health service psychologists, we should be looking beyond the p-value. But what does, what does that mean exactly? My sense from our conversation today is that in the case of health service psychologists, analyzing research with a broader set of tools might in fact help us to become better clinicians too. So what, what are some of your thoughts on that to take us a little bit deeper? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right, there are a lot of good evidence-based best practices out there. And <clears throat> this is very different than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So people are in a much better situation now. I think one of the important things to remember is that one study is not definitive, that studies need to be replicated. They need to be reproduced in many different ways. Um, qualitative research needs to be blended with quantitative research. We need to look at experimental design and different ways of attacking the information. You know, there's, there's facts and then there's knowledge. And that process of turning facts, scientific facts, that we might find in any one study, that's very different than this process of turning it into knowledge, where a field acknowledges that this is the truth. We don't start with that initially. We didn't initially know that smoking was associated with lung cancer. But study after study in multiple different ways, we were able to show this causation, this strong effect, and now it's recognized. And it's the same thing in, in psychology or, or any field. We need to work towards that over and over. As far as the p-value, can I give you a bringing it back to the, the p-value? Please do. Um, when, one last time. So my favorite way of thinking about the p-value um, is this idea of it being surprising. But the best metaphor I've ever heard was from Ron Wasserstein, who's the executive director of the ASA and my current boss. But I would, I would say this even if you weren't my boss. He says, um, you should think about p-value as a swipe on Tinder. So oh. if you are swipe right, if you, I love it. If you're swiping left or right, what do you mean by that? Do you mean done, it's it, I'm swiping and you are the person I'm going to settle down with and I don't need to look anymore and we're done, you beautiful person, you. We're not, same thing with the p-value. We're not saying that. We're not saying, okay, done. This is just the start. This just gets us to the date, to the conversation. And then the hard work begins. But that's where the fun begins as well. 
So I think it makes research a little bit more interesting if you tie in Tinder with p-values. So it's more fun. <laughs> I think <laughs> it does. I, I never heard that analogy in any of my statistics coursework, and I don't know why, because I think it's a really helpful one that's really stick sticks to the brain. So I appreciate your your sharing that with us. Well, Regina, this has really been an enlightening dialogue. And I very much appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to help us break down the meaning of p-values. For the clinical consult brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, I'm Daniel Elkert. Thanks for joining and a reminder to our listeners that this and all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and do not provide formal advice for clinical practice or evidence of continuing education.